Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What's going on, guys? Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the Ready Eddy membership program. To this point, we've grown to have thousands of products from up-and-coming startups and small businesses in the outdoor travel and lifestyle space on the platform. You can save up to 50% off all of these products, anything from skis to jackets to food bars to supplements. Anything you could think of to support your outdoor activities is on the platform from small up-and-coming brands. It's a great opportunity to support small businesses while also discovering brands that you've never heard of. You can show off the new gear to your friends and also save a ton while doing it. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to readyeddy.com slash members to get your first month free. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with one of the co-founders of Zero Shoes, Stephen Sashin. Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. I don't know about this sitting down thing. I'm standing at a treadmill desk. <laughs> well, I'm sitting. I'm also sweating my, my butt off. <laughs> it's very hot in the East Coast right now. Um, all right. So for the listener who may not be aware of Zero Shoes, how would you best describe it to them? It's pretty simple. Um, I like to ask, do your feet feel better at the end of the day than they did at the beginning of the day? Or do you, you know, which do you prefer taking off your shoes or putting them on? <laughs> and so your feet are designed to bend and move and flex and feel the world. You have a quarter of the bones and joints of your whole body in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in your soles than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. And that means you're supposed to use those things. And if you don't, um, that can cause aches and pains because basically if you don't let your feet do their job, that function tries to move into your ankles, your knees, your hip, and your back. So Zero shoes are designed to let your feet do what's natural. Nice wide toe box so your toes can spread and relax. Low to the ground for balance and agility. We don't elevate your heel, which messes with your posture. The soles are super, super flexible for that bending and flexing thing that your feet are supposed to do. Uh, they let you have the right combination of protection, but also ground feel. So your brain is actually knowing what's going on with your feet, so it can work with everything in between. And they're super lightweight. So they're perfect for travel. They roll up and fit in your pack or your pocket. Uh, the soles have a 5,000-mile warranty, and they're super affordable. And it's the kind of thing we also like to say, if you don't like strangers, don't wear zero shoes, because every customer we have has stories of being you know, out in public and someone walking up and going, what are those, and starting a conversation. Right, so, right. Or other people wearing them, being like, oh, I've got a pair too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that happens a lot. Um, the, my favorite one was a, a Craigslist misconnections where someone said, you know, saw you in your zero shoes and I wasn't wearing mine, so I was too embarrassed to say hi. Hope you see this. <laughs> That's hilarious. It was great. Okay, so give me a little bit of background. So you started Zero Shoes in 2008. Um, what really led you to um, starting everything? So when a mommy loves a daddy very much, they get together. And then uh, it was actually 2009, the end of 2009. And what happened was I had gotten back into sprinting after a 30-year break and was a couple years earlier and was getting injured pretty much constantly. And a friend of mine who's a world champion runner said, take off your shoes and see if you learn anything from running barefoot. And the short version is what I learned was why I was getting injured and how to stop getting injured. So it was just a form problem that I couldn't tell I had when I was in shoes and I couldn't feel the ground. 
ground. And when all I was doing was feeling the ground, then it became very apparent um, what the problem was and equally apparent how to change it. And so that made my injuries go away. I became faster. I became a master's All-American sprinter. Um, technically, for men over 55, you may be talking to the fastest Jew in the world. And <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of competition for that one. And uh, uh, so after I had that natural movement experience, I just wanted it as often as I could have it. And I just started making a pair of sandals with some rubber I got from a shoe repair place and some string I got from Home Depot. And uh, I made them for my wife and a couple other barefoot runners. And then it was a shampoo commercial. They told two friends and they told two friends. And the next thing you know, this guy says, I've got a book coming out on barefoot running. And if you had a website and treated this hobby like a business, I'd put you in the book. And I've been an internet marketer for a long time. So I rush home and I pitch this idea, brilliant idea to my wife who assures me that it is in fact a horrible idea and told me not to do it. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. And after she went to bed, I built a website. So <laughs> that's how it all began. <laughs> okay. So to, you mentioned that you're a, you were an internet marketer before starting Zero Shoes. Tell me a little bit yeah. about the years up to the launch. Well, I, back in 1992, I was one of the first guys to figure out SEO back when it was a really easy thing of just putting a bunch of white text on a white background and stuffing a lot of keywords. Um, it evolved, obviously, much after that. But I, I had a software company that I started back in 1992. And just in trying to figure out how to market that, I was selling it on GeoCities and AOL and IRC and CompuServe and uh, all the things that kind of predated the internet. And then, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a there's a law and convoluted path that led from there to where we are now. But suffice it to say, I've just been kind of at the, the front edge of the internet thing for a while. So you're no stranger to starting businesses, basically. No, I've never had a job. <laughs> um, never, I've never had a resume. I've never been interviewed. Uh, I, I think it could be interesting. It, I don't imagine it would end well for anybody. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you were younger, you just kind of always knew that you, know, it, it, you were going to start some no, it just business. never occurred to me to do anything else. Um, I never actually <laughs> take it back. When I was in college, I, <clears throat> I, the whole idea of, of marketing was very interesting to me. It always had been because I was always doing my own thing and had to market it somehow. And then I met a bunch of guys who had gotten MBAs in marketing and were working for big corporations. And my immediate thought was, holy crap, I'm never going to do that. And and one day I was living in Manhattan and I took the the uh, subway up from Wall Street to the Upper East Side around the time that everyone was getting off for work. And I was the only one not in an identical suit. And I went, I will never be one of those guys. So that's the closest I ever came to to planning. But mostly, um, I've been really lucky that the things that I found interesting, I found ways of doing them and making a living doing them. I did stand-up comedy and acting and writing for a living and um, started a software company, taught meditation, uh, just uh, whatever it was, I seemed to find a way to to just do it. That's incredible. Okay, so shifting back to Zero Shoes. Now, in 2009, when you launched it, you started out making it for yourself and a few of your friends, and then yeah. it slowly snowballed. What was the prototyping process like to the point well where- i wouldn't say slowly snowballed i mean within six weeks of launching the website it was our full-time job uh oh, really? but um yeah and the prototype it, there was no prototype because what we, our original product was a do-it-yourself sandal kit so we were selling big sheets of rubber that we cut into small sheets of rubber big things of cord we cut into small things of cord and instructions for how to make a sandal based on what's essentially a ten thousand year old design so uh, and i gave the whole thing away i put up videos showing everything i was doing the day that i launched the company uh in, in part because i needed the videos to exist somewhere and in part because i wanted to give away as much as i could because i wanted to share this idea and the simple thing from a 
business perspective is that I was telling people how to do something and I had the best sources of the best materials. So it was kind of easy. Okay, so you had these kits and really the way it, it blew up was just word of mouth? Um, no. So back to the internet marketing thing, when I, after I built the website and my wife growled at me the next morning, uh, we actually were starting a search engine marketing business at that time. I said, it'll be a good case study, you know, just to show how we can build something and get some ranking. So I should be able to own the keywords that I care about within a few months. And it only took me about eight weeks. And for a while, if you searched for the, the relevant keywords, for what we were doing, I had like 40 of the top 50 positions in the search results. So so it, it was it was an active marketing, uh, both social media and search engine marketing process, and word of mouth. The word of mouth was huge, and it all, and has been since day one. Right. So you, after a few months, you were basically receiving a ton of organic traffic directly related to yeah, yeah. The sandals, and, and the organic traffic has just you know grown every year. That's really awesome. Okay, so. From that point till today, what has the growth been like? You're now at 34 employees. Like, tell me oh about what that journey's been like. Uh, mind numbing and hard to fathom. <laughs> the, you know, <clears throat> I like to say that that if you, well, I'll say it this way. I, I ended up getting a, a master's degree in film and one of my teachers was uh, the director, Milos Forman. And somebody said to Milos, you know, how do you make a good movie? He goes, well, you know, 90% of making a movie is casting and the other 10% is uh, casting. And so I like to say with business, uh, it's 90% luck. And then the other 10% is luck. And there's a whole other 100% where 90% of that is working your ass off. And the other 10% is hoping you can figure out how to fix the stuff that's broken today that was working yesterday. So uh, it really really is, uh, boy, I I can't even begin to think of how to answer that question other than we've been incredibly lucky. We were on Shark Tank in 2003. That gave us a huge boost um, in both sales and and awareness. We met a guy named Dennis Driscoll who has had 35 years of experience developing footwear and he had just retired and loved what we were doing and wanted to work with us for pennies on the dollar. Don't tell him I told you that. And... (laughs) Uh, um, but in terms of answering the question about growth, um, I can give you the public information because we did an equity crowdfunding raise in 2017. So I'm only allowed to talk about things that are public. And if you, in fact, go to zeroshoes.com slash SEC, you'll get redirected to all those documents. But in 2014, we were about 772,000 in sales. Uh, a year later, we were 1.44 million. A year later, I think 2.75. A year later, we were five and a half or so. Uh, last year, we were 8.785. And uh, and the last couple of years, we've been hamstrung by not having enough inventory. We ran out of our best-selling products for the last couple of years. What's that process been like? Because like obviously, building a business on its on itself is difficult, but just dealing with something where manufacturing is involved and supply chain and all that kind of stuff definitely. Um, shoot me in the head <laughs> in the morning. It is it is really mind numbing. Um, I mean, we had a situation this year where our factory just didn't produce a thousand pairs of something we asked for. It's like, why didn't you do it? Well, because we didn't. Uh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, so it is. It's people. Well, when we first got started, about seven months in, we met some guys who had all met at Reebok 35 years earlier, and they said, "We really believe in what you're doing. Natural movement is the most important thing, and we would start this company with you." But we've been in footwear long enough that we're not so stupid to start a shoe company, and and they told us how hard it was, and our response was, "Yeah, you know, I get it. We're optimistic and naive. That's the only way anything ever gets done." But we were did not know how it really were. It, 
software is exceptionally hard. Uh, there's just a, it really hasn't evolved much in a hundred years. And I, I, I can't go into all the reasons that are, that it's so challenging other than the, the simple one that, uh, you can't make a product that works for everybody. I mean, that's one. And the other is that there's human beings involved and some days, you know, someone doesn't have a good day and there's not putting in the, the concentration that they need to, or, um, so the factory decides they want to try and swap out a cheaper material for a more expensive one without telling you so they can make a few extra cents or, I mean, there's just so many things that go into it. Um, and then there's, there's one, actually, this is a perfect example. Uh, when we ran out of inventory last summer, people were just bitching at us. Why don't you just order more? It's like, well, it's not that simple. First of all, it takes about three and a half months for us to get it from the moment we order it. And we have minimums that we have to order. And we're going to have new colors for next season. So if we ordered today, we'd be getting a summer shoe in November. We'd have 3,000 pairs of it. And we're planning on replacing that color with a new color in January. So we can't do it. And uh, people are not very, uh, what's the word, understanding. <laughs> oh, they never are. And like, it, until you start a business, you never are. And it's funny, once I started Ready Eddie, I've always, I've, my understanding quota, or I guess uh, empathy, has increased dramatically. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like, again, you know, my, my, my degree, original uh, graduate degree is in film. When people complain about a bad movie, it's like, Dude, you have no idea how hard it is just to make any movie. It didn't start out bad. They were doing the best they could. And then, you know, things happen. Like one of the most amazing things I learned was when Woody Allen makes a movie, he shoots the movie, they get it into the editing room, and they realize that they don't really have a movie. And they have to go either reshoot or add new material to fill in like half of the movie. And some of the most iconic Woody Allen movie scenes were things that, uh, here's a perfect example from Annie Hall. There's the scene where he does cocaine for the first time and sneezes and blows it all up. That was because the editor says, okay, in this first scene, you're in New York. In this next scene, you're in LA. We've got to get you to LA somehow. So Woody just on the spot writes this scene where he's saying, yeah, I've got to go to an award show. And the guys are going, hey, do you want to try cocaine? And he just ad-libs the sneezing thing. Totally made up on the spot just to solve a problem. Right, kind of just improv <laughs> Right. Right, you know, one of the most iconic scenes ever in a movie, and it was just because they didn't do it right the first time, and Woody luckily has the freedom to do it wrong and then look at it and figure out how to make it right, and most people making movies don't have that luxury. They just have to get it done, and they walk away going, holy crap, man, and it's, and it's true in any sort of manufacturing business. You never get it perfect on the first try. You can't, and that's frankly, very challenging for me psychologically. I don't really like that, uh, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, and it's something you kind of just have to grapple with over time. And I think like with the um, growth of Kickstarter, in the beginning, people were less oh, comfortable with things not showing up as advertised. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, but I think over yeah. time, they've gotten a little bit more okay with like, okay, this is well, new, there's going to be some sort of I think Laws. they've gotten okay realizing that they might be throwing their money in the toilet. Yeah, I guess that's it, yeah. And they're more so supporting an idea. Yeah, it's like, you know, if it works, great. If not, I had a lot of fun spending 100 bucks. It you know, made me feel good, and it was better. It was like going to a couple of movies. Exactly, exactly. And, and like, it's interesting how some people still don't get that, or they just send you a very angry email and it's just like listen like you email us we'll we'll work with you to work out any issues that you have you know well, you know mean? you're actually pointing to something else that i find interesting so i've been again i've been selling things online since 1992 and the 
attitude that customers have has changed dramatically and and the change has accelerated especially in the last few years and so people are more demanding more entitled more frankly unreasonable and what i mean by that is um not that they're that they're you know bad people or anything but their ideas about how things work are literally not well reasoned and so for example everyone assumes that every company should a have free unconditional shipping both ways and returns without and you know whatever and um and get a, give a discount just for showing up and um the companies especially in the consumer product space that are giving initial discounts and that are doing free shipping both ways and unconditional returns they're all losing money and so uh, when people say, why don't you do what Amazon does? I said, because we can't afford to lose billions of dollars for years. Why don't you do what Nordstrom does? Well, first of all, you've misrepresented what Nordstrom does. They don't do what you think. And we're not a department store. We're a single product company. So people are, um, uh, in a way, I think they're just, in the early days of the internet, people were kind of grateful and amazed and happy to be able to participate. And now they work on the assumption that everyone's trying to screw them. Oh, that's, that's it. If you run a business, you're trying to screw me kind of the thing. Right. Right. And, um, and the other one is that, uh, if I yell loud enough, you're supposed to give me whatever I want. And, and that one is just, um, amazing. What amazes me is the simple thing that if you called and said, Hey, I got a problem, you know, can you help me out? Most likely, we're going to help you out. If you call and start screaming about things that we don't even control, like, you know, the post office didn't deliver it on time. What do you want me to do? But, you know, if you, if you, if you walk in with an attitude that we're trying to screw you and so you've got to screw us back, then it's just less likely that you're going to get what you want because it's human beings on the other end of the phone. And we want to be helpful. But, boy, when you start just, like, railing on somebody as your opening gambit, it, it doesn't doesn't go well (laughs) like if you want to try sorry if you want to try something crazy when you're calling customer service for any company not just ours but especially companies where you know all they hear is people complaining all day uh start by saying boy i can't imagine what it's like just hearing people complaining all day just start the conversation with that and the person on the other end of the phone is going to go oh my god (laughs) feel so happy that you empathize with them, that they will probably bend over backwards to be helpful. No, that's so true. And that's like after after starting Ready Eddie, that's kind of how I am with all customer service people. Totally. You know, because well, I'm like, let, it's not your fault. And like, I well, just, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. It starts that way for me, but if they're clearly reading a script and they just don't get what I'm saying, um, I will confess I am a flaming asshole. <laughs> it depends. I I try to keep my cool, but oh oh I try, but <laughs> um, but uh, but there's times where I <laughs> I got to tell you my favorite my favorite thing and 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 pardon the language for anyone who cares if you have an issue with syllables in a particular order. But um, somebody call, I, I was call, talking to somebody about something and whatever the problem the issue was it was really unsolvable and really a problem. I just went ah this is just such a fucking hassle, and the person said as sometimes happens you know you don't have to speak to me that way. I said. Well, I wasn't speaking to you that way. I was expressing my frustration in a relatively common way. And if you have a problem with that, can you put me on the phone with someone who's not such a fucking snowflake? (laughs) And the guy, there's a pause, and the guy goes, sorry about that. Let me help you out. (laughs) Someone said, you know, we don't talk like that where I'm from. I go, wow, where I'm from, I am being polite. (laughs) It's the Northeast so. charm, <laughs> or East Coast charm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so 
anyway, pivoting back to zero shoes. Um, oh sure. I want to talk about so like obviously you guys have grown a tremendous amount and you you yeah. obviously make a large number of shoes every year. How do you keep sustainability in mind, especially running an outdoor focused company? It's a really good question. Um, and it's a real challenge in footwear in particular because the materials that you need to use, well, you have to make some decisions. And one of the decisions is, do you want your product to last or not? And there's a lot of quote, sustainable materials that just don't last very long. So one of the things that we do is a, we're making a quote minimalist product. So we're using fewer materials. So there's less materials, less energy going into producing these things. And we use materials that last a long time. So most footwear companies, they say you need to swap out your shoes every one or one to 500 miles, depending on the shoe. And our soles have a 5,000 mile warranty. And we, the reason that most shoes don't last long is they're using materials, especially the midsole is a foam that wears out and they make the rubber wear out around the same time the foam does so that you don't end up uh, with a, well, a shoe that they think is bad for you. Ironically, by the time the foam wears out is when it's probably getting good. But we don't have a foam midsole, so we just made an outsole that lasts a long time. When we um, talked to our rubber manufacturer and told him what we wanted, his response was, but that's not how they make outsoles for shoes. And we, yeah, that's why we want to do it that way. So we make stuff that lasts longer and has fewer materials and takes less energy to manufacture. That's sort of our idea. Some of the materials, um, some of the recycled or, well, here's a, here's a rant of mine. When people say, Hey, it's recyclable. Who cares? No one's going to take it to whatever you have to do to recycle it. That's just marketing bullshit, in my opinion. Using recycled materials is also challenging in certain ways, in large part because when new materials come out, they're frankly really expensive, and we try to be an affordable brand. And so we have to wait for a lot of those things until there's enough being used that the price can come down and we can use it. of on top of what the options are. But sometimes, from our perspective, the best option is to make something that lasts longer and costs less to begin with than being able to use some magic material that has some story. There's a, there's a couple products coming out that are made with recycled plastics and they advertise by where, by getting this product, you know, you've, you've taken 400 bottles out of the blah, 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 whatever. And it, it's predominantly not true. They're they are they're throwing out numbers to make people feel good that they can't necessarily back up. Um, so it, there's there's a lot of greenwashing going on. There's a lot of people making claims about how green they are that they really can't back up. Um, we're actually talking to to a manufacturer. We we're having this conversation today, who is taking what they call used tires. Uh, and they found a way to to get the key raw materials out of those tires so that we can use them in some uh, some products that we're looking to make. Uh, and it's really tires that never made it to a car to begin with. It's right. tires that, that have blemishes or whatever. So yeah, right. yeah they're going to get thrown away. They're going to get put in a landfill. Uh, and so it's a really interesting thing. But it's not like. But you can't. It's another thing. People don't. Um, Human beings have this idea that if they can think of it, it must be true. So when someone says, why don't you use recycled rubber? It's like, well, because there is no such thing as a recycled rubber that actually has the performance characteristics that you want. Once you make rubber, 
you can't unmake it and put it back together. It's not like uh, taking water, turning it into ice, melting it, and turning it back into ice. It's a very different process. So, so there are some cool things happening where people are are very aware of this for both both environmental and business reasons. Uh, and we're we're trying to stay as on top of them as we can with the constraints that we have. Uh, again, about being a bootstrap company that needs to actually make a profit every year, or we can't buy enough mater- materials for next year uh, and uh, and sell an affordable product. Some of the recycled stuff um, that we're seeing, it's like, hey, you can buy this shoe and it's all made of recycled materials and it's $300. It's like, well, congratulations. But I mean, you know, what are you really doing? If, you're, if they're going to sell a thousand pairs of those, are you really helping the planet? Right. And then they last three months and then you got to buy a new pair of shoes. Right, right. So it's uh, so again. It's one of these things. I guess the way I could sum it all up is, is I wish the story about sustainability wasn't so knee jerk and so hyper simplified, so that um, people could actually have a conversation about what's effective, what's not effective, and and the the bigger picture of what sustainable really means. I think those are really great points. Um, now, over the last ten years, what would you say have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made with Zero Shoes? Starting the company, running the company. <laughs> um, um, no, it's it's actually. I'll tell you the thing that gets us out of bed every morning. My my wife says it best. She goes, "There's enough shoe companies out there. There's no reason to start another unless your product changes people's lives." And every day we get phone calls and emails and reviews and testimonials from people who use that phrase. Um, and so it, it's been incredibly satisfying. But. Um, I don't have a, a good way of answering the biggest mistake. Oh, wait, I do. I was going to say, I don't have a good answer of making of, of, for the biggest mistake because every decision we made made sense at the time. So, uh, but, here's, but here's one. There was a large company who, let's just say, started using some, tr- some words and phrases that we had trademarks for. And I found out very quickly and immediately sent a cease and desist, even though my lawyer assured me that they weren't really doing it and it wasn't a big deal and, you know, don't do it. And I said, I'm looking at their trade show booth and there's a million dollars worth of artwork using my trademarked terms. So we started pursuing them and to make a long story very short, uh, they, they did what's referred to as extracting themselves from the mark. They got out, they decided they, they were going to stop using it and they were able to reprint everything and redo everything so they wouldn't have the mark uh, in play. Now, the problem is, uh, the mistake was that I, I alerted them too quickly. Had I waited for two weeks, it would have been too late for them to change anything. And the way that the law works for trademark infringement is I could have sued them for every penny they made using my trademark times three. It was a half a billion dollar lawsuit that went to nothing because I was quick to the draw. Well, you won't make that mistake again. (laughs) No, well, hopefully I won't even be in that situation again. That's for sure. I mean, it's interesting, like all the different facets of business as you get more established and like the legality of it is an animal that oh, is so complicated. Um, I, I way back when 20 something years ago, I did a lecture for the small business administration to a bunch of entrepreneurs. I said, how many of you have heard the idea that it, when you, you know, have your business plan that you should double your expenses and cut your profit in half, your projected profit in half. Cause that'll be more accurate. And everyone's raised their hand. I went, yeah, don't do that. Cause you'll just make half of that and cost you twice as much as whatever that new number is. Um, and, <laughs> 
And the number that's going to shock you the most is your FedEx bill and your legal bill. And um, both of those are we, – we, the guys that I mentioned before who had all met at Reebok 35 years earlier, at some point they said something about having a $5,000 FedEx bill every month. And we thought, wow, that's crazy. And now it's like, oh, I'd love to have a $5,000 FedEx bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I decided to start an internet business. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I so miss digital products. It is – boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, like the nightmare. It's just such a different, more complicated animal. <laughs> Making stuff is really, really hard. It really is. It, it really is, and I commend you for it. <laughs> you guys have definitely done a great job of building a super successful business over the last 10 years. Thank you, thank you. Now, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a business in the outdoor space or really just a business in general? Get a government job with a pension. You think I'm kidding. Um, I, I say that because uh, if my saying that makes you kind of go, hmm, then you should totally get a government job with a pension. And if, uh, if it doesn't sway you in any way, if you're a true entrepreneur, I, I can, there's nothing I could say that would dissuade you from your completely stupid idea. And, and I say it that way because you know, most of the ideas we come up with are stupid. And, and we're lucky we find a good one and, and, and it works for a while or it works for a long time. But I mean, uh, ideas are, are a dime a dozen. Making something work is a whole different game. Um, I, th- I guess the, if I'm going to give any advice, it would be find a way to demonstrate that people that you don't know are willing to give you money for your thing before you commit to your thing. Because we lo- we get very married to our ideas. We're convinced that they're going to change the world. Um, our friends and family will tell us that we're right. And who gives a shit what they say? And you may be right and you may not be, but why don't you try and prove it first as inexpensively as possible uh, because that third-party validation, someone who you've never met responding to an ad that you've written, reaching into their pocket and pulling out their hard-earned money, that's really the only way. And frankly, if you you know, you got to be careful that you that if you only get one of those, uh, you you don't use that as proof. You know, you need to get enough so that you have some statistically meaningful reason to believe that there's a there there. And then the other thing is. Uh, always know your numbers and be, how do I want to put this? Um, this is a weird one. Uh, let me say it differently. I, when people write books about how to be successful in business, they do something that I think is incredibly stupid. They ask people, how'd you become successful? And that person will then make up some completely ridiculous story about how they did it and why they did it and ignore all the factors that were out of their control, environmental factors, uh, legal factors, governmental factors. I mean, there's so many things. Again, that luck thing is massive. Right, time is huge. Yeah, we started Zero Shoes at a time where the whole minimalist barefoot thing just kind of took off. And then, and I I mean, I can't begin to tell you how lucky we've been. Um, But, um, but, uh, so a more interesting question is to talk to someone who's had some abject failures or, or even better, someone who's you know, gone up, gone down, gone up, gone down, and ask them, if you had to teach a college-level course on how to go from making a million dollars a month to zero, which you did, what would you teach? And ask, because the failures, the things that cause, quote, failure, whatever that means, I don't actually use that word, the thing that can cause you to go from a, from a million a month to nothing a month, these are reproducible Concepts. These are things that you can be on the lookout for on a daily basis. These are things like, uh, you know, being overcommitted, being overextended, being not paying enough attention to your competitors. Um, not, uh, I mean, you know, there's a whole list of them, and and so 
you, you want to try and find all, basically you need to start thinking, this is hard for entrepreneurs to do because we tend to be hyper optimistic. You need to start thinking of everything that could go wrong and make sure you have a plan for that. It's one of the reasons my wife and I are a really good team is I'm the ridiculous optimist and she's, you know, third generation insurance and she's always trying to think of what could go wrong. I'm the one who says, Hey, here's this great idea. She's the one who says, that's cool. We can't afford it. And, and um, I'm really, really lucky that A, she exists and for whatever reason decided to marry me, and even more that I'm smart enough to know that she's right. <laughs> so, um, people. <laughs> was, was it always that way? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah. I'm uh, one of the things that I think makes our relationship successful is that I know when she has a complaint, um, she's undeniably correct. And my job is to figure out how, even if I disagree with. There's a certain element to it that will undeniably be correct, and and um, uh, no one. There's no thing that anyone can say to me that's seemingly insulting or critical that I can't find the truth of, and it couldn't be more important than it is with my wife. But I. But it's true with everybody. Um, you know, if someone says I can't think of a, a thing anymore because um, I don't really care what they are because they're all true. So if someone says, um, uh, "Oh, actually, my favorite one," you know, um, uh, you think you're the smartest guy in the room. It's like, oh yeah, I totally think that. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying I completely think that sometimes, and uh, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And the fact that that bothers you means that I'm doing it in a way that's kind of obnoxious, and that's not really my intention. And if you have some suggestion of how I can deal with this differently, I am all ears because I don't want to piss people off. And I know that it happens sometimes. And boy, I'd love to find a way to not do that. So what do you think? Right now, I like that a lot. What, what is it like working, starting and founding and building a company with your wife? It's been the most satisfying thing of my entire life. I mean, simply. Yeah? You, so there, you, you, Absolutely. Have you had any trouble sort of separating like your, your business life and like <laughs> relationship stuff that's so funny you think there's two things um i mean because we are in business together this is our whole life uh and we um and we're both committed to it we're both committed to the mission of this company and the product so um watching lena over the last nine years i mean she she was always whiz bang smart but watching her become an incredible business person has been just a um, uh, in, uh, mind-blowing. I mean, I'm so, so grateful. And um, back to that luck thing, literally, the, most, the luckiest thing in my whole life is that I met this woman and, and, and I'm married to her. And, and so um, I don't think this business would work at all if it weren't the two of us married to each other. If I had to hire someone for her job, they wouldn't have lasted and vice versa. I know she thinks the same. So it's, it, it's been really fortuitous. And and the fact that we did have a good relationship walking into this, and we didn't talk about starting it. It just kind of started, and then we went for the ride. Uh, but it's it, it's been great. That's really awesome. Where do you see Zero Shoes in the next year, five years, ten years down the road? We're trying to make the idea of natural movement the obvious, better, healthy choice, the way natural food currently is. We want everyone to be using their feet the way they were intended to be used. If you think about footwear over the last 10,000 years, for the first 9,950 of them, and everything looked like what we do, just something to give your foot some protection and something to hold that thing on and then add a little style to it. So we're trying to, we're, we're doing what I call uh, creating a movement movement of letting your feet bend and move and flex and feel so your body can do what's natural. And 
uh, things are growing really quickly. There's a lot that's happening both on the digital side and the wholesale side that we're incredibly excited about. The products that we're starting to that we're announcing for next year are spectacular. Uh, and what I'm expecting to happen is that we're going to grow really, really quickly. And at some point, a bunch of big companies are going to feel even more threatened than I know they already do. And uh, it's going to get fascinating. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a quick example. There's um, there's a big conference that I was at last year, and there was representatives from a couple of big shoe companies there. And the conference was sponsored by one of those big shoe companies. Said big shoe company requested my non-presence this year. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only because I just asked them questions like, where's your proof for anything you've ever said? Right, right, You know, right. simple things. You claim to be trying to improve performance and reduce injury. You've been working on this for 50 years. Can you show me any evidence that you've ever done it? Right, no, and that's they, interesting. And, and they had none. Yeah, well, it's uh, definitely going to be an interesting uh, road ahead of you guys. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I got to tell you something. Uh, people say there's a debate about natural movement and how can there be really? I mean, you know, your body has evolved to do amazing things and no one has made ways for simple stuff like walking and running. No one has come up with anything that's improved that. I have a friend who was at Nike for 30 years. He said, I spent 30 years with Bill Bowerman trying to improve human performance. We couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. And, uh, and so there was a reason that I was saying that. Um, so, uh, oh crap. What'd you say right before that? You said something that I was trying to say something. I said it's going to be an uh, interesting road. Ahead of oh you. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it, it's an amazing thing. Um, we're right. <laughs> and people like to say there's a debate about whether barefoot and natural movement is better for you. And there's not a debate. There are some people who, who have some bad data or bad experiments or don't have any reason, don't have any personal experience or haven't had enough experience with enough people to have an opinion about the other side of the equation. And then there's a bunch of, I mean, look, we have to do research, not we, but the people who, who are interested in this question about natural movement have to do research to prove something like this. Using your body is better for you than not using it. I mean, we have to prove that if you use your feet, they get stronger. And if you don't use them by putting them in something that doesn't let them move, they get weaker. Really? We have to prove that? It's so self-evident. It's so obvious. So it's really fun when you're in a, let's call it a, a, a debate or a situation where there are people on the seeming other side. And the seeming other side for us is $100 billion worth of companies who are making footwear that doesn't let your foot move naturally, that squeezes your toes together, that elevates your heel, that's super stiff, that's super heavy, you know, and, and a number of, and doesn't let you feel anything. Being on the other side of that conversation when you are right is super fun. The problem is the other people don't think so. <laughs> and you know, when you point out to them that they're not correct, they don't respond well. Human beings don't like being told they're wrong. Especially when they spend a lot of time working on whatever when it is. They have, well, and when they have, uh, when there's a lot invested in it, of literally course, yeah. invested in it, um, they don't take it well. They don't take it lightly. Look, what happened with the barefoot movement back in 2009, 2010? At first, the shoe companies were terrified that people were going to stop wearing running shoes, and they started putting out articles about how if you run barefoot, you're going to step on hypodermic needles and get Ebola, and your mortgage rate will go up, and your kids won't get into college, and you'll forget how to use the number five, and I mean, just all sorts of crazy shit. And then within a year, they were selling shoes they were calling barefoot shoes that were as close to barefoot as a pair of stilts, but they were trying to capitalize on it. So uh, rather than actually 
making a change. And I know the CEOs of a number of the large companies know that what we're doing is right. But they have said, we can't switch to that because it would be admitting that what we've been doing is wrong. And they're committed to what they've been doing. And so uh, that's a, it's a very interesting situation to be in. It doesn't make me friends <laughs> with people in high positions who I would otherwise get along with swimmingly and have a great time with. But I'm, again, we're on a mission. We know that there's value to what we're doing because we hear it every day. And I'm the first person to say that anecdotes in any quantity do not equal data. But when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people spontaneously reporting the kind of things that they say when they start using their feet naturally again, you can't dismiss it. It's not the same as data, but it's not, it's not something that should be just tossed away because of that. Now, now let me ask you this. I'm, I'm flat footed. Now, even still, like, how does that like with the minimalist shoe. Like, well, well, let me ask you a question. Who cares? Is it a problem? Uh, well, so I, I wear orthotics, right? And when I why? Don't, who, why? Who told you to do that? A doctor. <laughs> why did he tell you that? Because I'm flat-footed. Like if I'm, why, did, why does he think that you, by being flat-footed, you need to immobilize your foot? What other part of your body? If you walked into the doctor and said, my neck hurts, and he says, you're going to have to wear a neck brace for the rest of your life, what would you think of that doctor? I think he's crazy. <laughs> right. So why does it make sense when someone says that about your foot? I guess the way it was always explained to me is like your, your, the arch of your foot has this natural sort of curve, right? And some yeah. people who are flat-footed who don't have that need extra support there. That's always like the way it's Yeah, made. so an arch, um, if, you look in, if you look at an architectural arch, do you know how to break it? Uh, crack it in the middle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, not from the top, though. If you push down on the top of an arch, it gets stronger. It gets stronger the way you break yeah, an arch. Yeah, the way you break an arch is you support it from the bottom. Oh. Same thing in your foot. So I used to be flat-footed, and I'm not saying that doing what I'm doing will make you not flat-footed, but arch height is predominantly genetic. Even if you're flat-footed, you still have an arch. What's important is strength, not arch height. Arch height is genetic. Strength and flexibility. Some people who have high arches uh, need to do a little massage and some things to loosen those muscles up because or tendons because they've, they're kind of hypertonic. But the most important thing is strength. And in fact, they can be hypertonic because they're not strong enough to be naturally supportive. So um, when you can, and the way you get stronger is by using something. The way you get weaker is by supporting it. So how does it make sense? I met a guy who told me, well, I can't wear your shoes because um, you know I, I've had plantar fasciitis for 20 years. I said, well, that's not possible. You can't have an inflammation, an itis, for 20 years. And he goes, oh, you know, it's funny. It went away for about a year and a half. I went, oh, see, there you go. Because an inflammation doesn't just magically go away and then magically come back. Here's what happened. You have habitually tight calves and your idiot doctor, and I feel comfortable saying that because I was a pre-med and most of my friends who became doctors, my sp- Some of them smart, not all of them. Uh, so uh, your idiot doctor told you you had plantar fasciitis when you probably just had habitually tight calves. And then he put you in an orthotic because it allowed him to make an extra. How much are you paying for those every year? He goes, well, I get like, you know, $1,500 a year for all my different shoes. I said, okay. So you pay him an extra $1,500 a year for how long? 20 years? 20 years? Okay. There's $30,000 he's made off of this misdiagnosis. The proof that it's a misdiagnosis is that it went away spontaneously. What I'm suggesting is your calf just released one day and then came back because that was its habitual tendency. And you've gotten to the point where you can't walk barefoot on a hardwood floor. 
that's ridiculous, man. You should be able to run a marathon on cement if you wanted to. I said, if you want, I can give you some exercises in about six weeks. You'll be, your feet will be strong enough that you can walk in your house barefoot. And if you want, I can give you some more exercises where in about, mm, I don't know, two or three more months, you could run a 5K barefoot. And he looked at me like I was kind of crazy. I said, dude, just because I look like this and don't wear a white coat or have letters after my name doesn't mean I'm wrong. I assure you, and I can point you to the science that shows everything that I just said that I guarantee your doctor doesn't know about, and when you show it to him, he will tell you that you're wrong, even though there is data behind it. Well, that's very compelling points. <laughs> well, again, it's really simple. Right. Tell me where. It makes sense. I mean, look, you put your arm in a cast, it doesn't come out stronger. Of course, yeah. And then you have two choices eight weeks later. You need right. to either start doing some exercises and use it or continue to support it for the rest of your life and never use it naturally again. Which do you want to do? And I say to people, look, you know, switching to a, a truly minimal shoe, it might take a little while to get those muscles right, strong. Right, you have to build in. up the muscle, exactly. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, do you, which would you rather have, strength and balance for the rest of your life or be dependent on, on something where you end up, Jesus, you know, like, it's use it or lose it. And I'll tell you what losing it looks like. It looks like what happened to my dad three years ago, to, almost to this day, where um, he'd been in big shoes his whole life. And he's 80 years old. When he walked, he shuffle, shuffle, shuffled. And he had very bad balance. And he tripped over a little ledge in a hallway that was about a half an inch high that he didn't see. And he fell down, broke his hip, and was dead two weeks later. Balance in the elderly is a big deal. And we are all, if we're lucky, going to be elderly. Do you want to be able to be functional? If you want to see people, uh, want to see something amazing, go find cultures that don't wear regular shoes. And what you'll find is people in their 70s and 80s who are running and are smiling when they do it. <laughs> it's a whole different game. Yeah, you're right. You bring up a lot of really good points. And, you know, now it's like, okay, I'm not wearing any other shoes <laughs> after this conversation, which, uh, yeah, it's it's just amazing how much of this information is not out there and how many people. Like, oh, no, no, it's out there. It's just well, that there's billions of dollars of people yes. making sure you don't hear it. Well, so my girlfriend's family, she comes from a family of runners. They all, like, her yeah. father's run the Boston Marathon five times. Like, he's run probably like, 40 marathons in his life that probably has not a clue about any of this. He's been a Nike guy his well, whole life. Maybe. I mean, maybe he does, but you know, here's the problem. People think the decisions they've made are rational decisions and you can't give them rational information to argue against their rational decisions. Um, and so, and someone who's been a quote Nike guy his whole life doesn't know this, doesn't know that the guys who came up with the idea of making a high heeled padded running shoe were some doctors who were in Bill Bowerman's uh, same building and suggested that to Bowerman. And years later, when they were asked about this idea that they came up with, they said, yeah, it was the biggest mistake we ever made. They just made it up. They pulled it out of their butts. And because it sold well, Shoe, the shoe industry is a bunch of copycats. Everyone started copying it. And now it's common knowledge. It's been two generations of people wearing this basic design. And, you know, have you, I don't know if you've noticed, every couple of years, a shoe company will come out with some new magic technology, and it's always some form of cushioning. And they never introduce it by saying, hey, remember a couple of years ago when we said we had some magic new technology? Uh, yeah, we were totally wrong. That was completely crap. Uh, but this one, no, this one, seriously, this one's good. And, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf, except that in the story, the villagers eventually stop going. But we keep going back to the shoe store every year, every time they come up with some magic new thing and it's always the same thing yeah no you're completely right 
Well, I, uh, anyway. this was really um, educational, I think, for anyone listening. This is definitely going to think twice about the next pair of shoes that they buy. Um, and for anyone listening to this, before uh, July 2nd, you can actually enter to win a pair of shoes from Zero Shoes along with a ton of other gear um, from outdoor companies. So you just head over to com for your chance to win. And with that, Stephen, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, share your story, share the mission of Zero Shoes and you know all the great things you guys are doing. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. It's my favorite conversation. I hope someday I never have to have it because it's just the way people think. Until then, you know, we just want to encourage people to live life feet first. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.